It's not gonna do you any good. It's too late to turn back. You are now inside the dentist's office. The dentist is calling his assistant. He is bending over his latest victim. He straightens up and says to Miss Grubbage, Next! And guess who's next? <laughs> Step right up, friend. Now be careful now. Uh, word of advice before we get started here today. Word of advice. Well, it's not advice really. It's a word of warning. Definite warning. Uh, the topic we are about to take up makes me sweat. Uh, it's a very... Uh, it's a very distressing topic. I, I don't quite <laughs> I'd approach this because it concerns all of us, no question about it. It uh, concerns every last single living creature in the entire world. And it ain't you-know-what. It ain't a three-letter word, which is enough to make you nervous anyway at this time of day. However, I... I'm nervous. You know, think about this. You know, I just don't know how to approach this. And, and the only word of advice I can give you is that if uh, maybe you better go, uh, we'll carry on here. We, the brave ones, uh, you better get down to that friendly station where you know the Norman Lubov Choir, and they're giving you the time and the weather. The weather's very good to keep you calm. Give you the weather. A little news that'll keep you calm. Because the, what we have to say and what we're going to talk about today is something I have thought about talking about for a long time. Now, we all have thought about it. There isn't a single one of us who has not thought about this topic and has hurriedly pushed it out of his mind. Ah, get away! You're sick! And then walked on, <laughs> pretending that he's the only rotten one that thought about it. But actually, you're not. You know, we're all in it together. There's no question about it. Absolutely. Now, this topic is rarely brought out into the open. But it's always there. doesn't have to be brought out in the open. It is there. Like hardly anybody talks about air. It's there. There it is. You don't talk about uh, the sky. I don't hear anybody sitting around for hours talking about the sky. But it sure is there. Affects every last person in the whole world. There is a sky. Over the sore heads, the good guys, the bad guys, the rotten people, the beautiful people, the sky still stands there. It doesn't mess around anybody. Looks the same to everybody, you know. It squirts on everybody equally. And it uh, shines on everybody equally. Makes no value judgments. And either will this particular thing. I don't know whether I ought to do it or not. All right, you're right, I won't. You've convinced me. I won't. In fact, I'll instead sing Chinatown. Bring it up. I'm just doing this a chicken out, you know. China, China, Chinatown. Oh, where them lights, where them lights are low. China, China, Chinatown. Where the dragon lady sits around and waits for things to happen. And they sell the pizzas and the ravioli. China, China, Chinatown, Chinatown. Where the taxi fares will knock you right out of your skull. China, China, Chinatown. Where all the souvenirs were made in Pittsburgh. China, China. China, China, Chinatown. 
it's no use. I tried to get away. It's no use. Well, we might as well face the reality of what we're here for, friends. Commercials. All right. You're ready to take it now. The topic of today's essay, if such it can be, get up that next fantastic thing. We're going to need it real fast. The topic of today's essay is, are you ready? Tell me when you're ready in there. Let me know. All of you set? Grab a hold of the chair there. All set? The topic of today's essay is, are you ready to take it? It is... End of the world. Ah! We're all going down a drain. Ah! All right, cut it, cut it, Maddie. That's it. And I'll set it, set it back again. The topic of today's essay is the end of the world. You know, as a person gets old, hey, what's going on in there? Come on, calm down, everybody. Just set it up. We're all set now. And you, there won't be any problem. The, the topic of today's essay is the end of the world. Now think about that for a minute. I doubt whether most people over 25 ever really seriously think about it. For some reason or other, when you get over 25, you begin to accept the great, fantastic things that are around us, you know, like, well, almost anything, like uh, the end of the world. You, you just accept the sky, the heavens, all of this stuff. And you get very much involved in car payments. You get all hung up on, uh, you know, the daily trivia, the, the crud that you do. And so you begin to pretend like there is no such thing. It's a fiction. You know, the, it, it, we do really believe that the end of the world is a science fiction concept. That's not true. That is not true. There is not a scientist anywhere in the world who will not tell you that there is a definite end of the world. In other words, worlds, planets, and suns have a definite life span. <laughs> There's no question about it. Now... How about this end of the world? You know, when you're a kid, you walk around and you think about this. You say, boy, the end of the world. Kids always talk about that. The end of the world. And how do they picture the end of the world? I don't know. It's just the end of the world. Everything's falling down. People are yelling. It's the end of the world. That's all. The world is over now. But yet you can't comprehend there being no world. You can sort of comprehend there being no you vaguely. You know, We, we have a vague knowledge of this. But to comprehend no world at all. Boom! There's a cloud of dust in space, and then the dust blows away. No world. It is almost impossible to even think of such a thing. And yet, do you know, throughout the ages, people have not only vaguely feared it, but at times actively feared it. How many times have you heard people say, Oh, I know. I feel it in my bones. I've been reading. I've been reading all the signs and the omens. The end of the world is at hand. The end of the world. Yes. Well, let me tell you. There is, there is a vague thing within all of us that says somehow that it is possible. And yet we say it is impossible. The end of the world. 
A couple of years ago, are you aware, of course you might have seen it in the papers, a couple of years ago, one of the major Indian sects in India, one of their great prophets, had predicted that the world would come to an end. And he even told the day, he said it was going to be February something, and it was it. That was it. There was just no question. Was it February the 2nd? Well, all right. Of that year, I think it was 63, 62. All right. He said, this is it. Uh, forget it. And the whole, the whole sect, thousands and thousands of people, had made their peace with uh, whatever it is they were going to make their peace with, and they were, they were waiting for the end of the world. Well, now, I did not get a follow-up story on that. <laughs> I, I don't quite know what happened February 3rd. Uh, there must have been a lot of, uh, it must have gone right back to the drawing board. And this is, well, uh, just a minute now, the signs were not, wait a minute, hold it, oh, 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 oh I see. Because almost all the end of the world prophets, whenever their day arrives and nothing happens, they invariably say that the signs were misread. They invariably say, well, I do know when the end of the world is coming, but uh, I had a little trouble with a crystal ball here there this day. You know, the, the wind was blowing wrong and everything else. It is actually February 2nd, 1967, and then they prepare again. Now, this sect, I'm sure, is waiting for it now. Now, uh, we think in terms of the Indians. Uh, we always think in terms of, of some kind of uh, strange religious uh, movement outside of, of the country, somewhere off in some remote, usually uh, backward area where they think of these things. Not necessarily so. And by the way, have you noticed that the end of the world concept seems to invariably involve religion? Almost always? Uh, that's an interesting point. And why? I wonder why this is so. Uh, that, uh, well, religions are often based, you know, on what could be called the cataclysmic concept. Uh, where are you going afterwards? That kind of thing. But I remember one wild case. Uh, speaking of the, now I, I've got a, I've got a, a, a clipping here that started me off on this whole train of thought: the end of the world. Uh, the clipping came out of a small town in the Midwest and reminded me of something that I once saw. Uh, have you ever seen people waiting for the end of the world? Have you ever actually seen them yourself? Well, I did. I happen to, yes, I was a witness to a wild, strange scene that happened in Philadelphia a few years ago in a suburb of Philadelphia when I was living there. And uh, it, was, it was something I will never in my whole, all my life, I will never forget this strange scene. And uh, if you'll hang on, I'll tell you about it immediately after this strange scene. Well, this was, uh, this was a few years ago. It was in the very early 1950s. And uh, I was a comparatively uh, simple, unsullied youth at the time. And I took, uh, I took things uh, as they were, you know. You said, gee, wow, the birds are here, the birds are here. Uh, I'd say, uh, you know, the sun is shining, the sun is shining. It was, <laughs> you know, it was funny how you go through a period in your life when you really do accept things. You... You, you don't question things. Uh, that's a great long period of your life, actually. And then suddenly you find that there's a lot of wheels within wheels. And there are many things that just don't, that you can't explain. Well, there was a tremendous movement. Uh, I began to see signboards all around this area, this suburb of Philadelphia that I lived in. They were talking about meetings. 
Well, I didn't pay any attention to it. It was some some kind of a sack there. They were saying something like the uh, the, uh, uh, the the let's all pray to Allah sect or some some wild sect. Just a name. It had some name. Uh, it had a peculiar kind of uh, you know. There's certain kinds of sects, uh, religious sects, that have in their the very name of the sect is an angry statement. Uh, they're angry. They have split off. Like uh, the uh, uh, let's all clap hands reformed movement, uh, that kind of thing, which means that they're lashing out at the other guys. You see, the old guys that, that started the clap hands movement or whatever it might be. Well, it was one of those sects, and I began to see meetings on street corners, and I paid no attention to it until one day I'm down at the grocery store, and a guy is standing there, behind the counter, just an ordinary man. That's what threw me. He was a guy I'd been going there for a long time, you know, buying beans there. And I'd go in and buy bread and stuff. little tiny store. So I go into the store one day, and the guy is standing behind the counter. Nobody else in the place, just me. I walk in, say, I'll have a uh, package of uh, eight-hour-a-day cut-plug tobacco, please. And uh, he looks at me for a long moment, and he says then, Are you ready? I said, well, yeah, I, I think I can pay for it. Here, I've got a quarter here. He says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Have you heard the word? I said, word, word, what, what, what? I figured, you know, you know, if they're going to fire me down at the station, they tell me first, not him, you know. I says, uh, what word, what, what? And he says, have you... Pause a moment, brother. Just one moment. Think. Where will you be when the world ends? I said, gone. <laughs> That's where I'll be. He says, no, but you can save yourself. I said, save myself? You mean when the world ends, there's a few guys that ain't going to get it? Said, ah, are you really interested? Or are you just asking out of perverse curiosity? Well, <laughs> depends. I don't know yet. You know, at the end of the world coming, I'd like to be standing around on the street corner, everybody gone. What a ball I could have, you know. be great. He says, well, come to the meeting tonight. Well, I did, because the meeting was only about four doors away from my house, and he was in charge. I don't think I ever told you this. I was fascinated by this scene. It turns out that there was a Messiah at work, and this man was one of the acolytes, and this Messiah had predicted on a certain day that the world was going to end. And he also said to those people who would renounce all worldly goods, get rid of everything they've got. Now, I don't know why this seems to go along with all end-of-the-world prophets. Get rid of all your worldly goods. Give it to the prophet. Of course, he'll take care of that. Give, it to all, the, give all your worldly goods to the prophet. Sh uh, completely divest yourself of what they call worldly vestments. That means take off your clothes. That's also part of it. Wear a long gray robe and go atop a hill outside of Paoli, Pennsylvania and stand on the hill, way up there, which is remote from everybody else, you see. Stand up on that hill. When the world goes down the drain, you'll be saved because God, or whatever it is, knows that you're there on top of that hill. He has designated this to the prophet. Everybody wearing a white robe will be okay. All those guys wearing Bermuda shorts, forget it. They are going. All those guys wearing those button-down arrow collars, down the drain. Forget it. All those chicks walking around wearing those skirts and stuff, down the drain. 
anybody wearing a long white robe standing on the top of a hill in Paoli, Pennsylvania, with their hands outstretched, who have put all their worldly goods into the pot, they're saved. Well, you know, I walked out of that place and I thought, gee whiz, you know. I couldn't quite consider, you know, I thought, well, I've got at least 498 payments left on the Ford, you know. I can't give this to the prophet. Let him take care of that, you know. And uh, I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to give my fielder's mitt to him? Uh, <laughs> how am I going to handle all these things? You know, I kept thinking, what the heck, you know. And, and, and I figured out by the end, of the end of the block, you know, this is ridiculous. Not only is it ridiculous, it's totally impractical. Because a lot of the stuff I own is back home in Hammond, Indiana, where my mother lives. I can't write to her and say, send me all those stuff, you know, all that, my BB gun and all that stuff. I've got to give it to the prophet here. Uh, send my, my sled, ma. Uh, finally, send all those pictures of Dorothy Anderson, those old pictures. You remember all those letters, ma? I've got to get rid of all my stuff. I gotta, I'm, I'm giving it to the prophet here. And I figured, well, that would not be so good. And by the end of the block, I forgot it completely. You know how you do. You just walk along. And I thought, oh, nutty thing. I've been there. Well, days went by. Day after day went by, and I kept going into this grocery store. And this guy got an increasingly strange look in his eye. And believe it or not, about, oh, maybe three or four weeks after the initial meeting, I go in there, and the guy says, Well, the last time you'll see me here. I said, The last time you'll what, What's the matter, Fred? He says, I have divested myself of my earthly goods. I said, you mean the star? Earthly. He looks, he's looking at the beans, you know, and he's looking at the candy bars. Earthly. I said, well, yeah, well, I want a can of uh, Spam, please. He says, oh, well, brother, you're going to rule the day. I said, well, be that as it may. Give me the Spam. And so I bought, the, never saw him again. That was the end of it. And another guy moved in and took over the store. I never saw this again. And another, a completely new guy with a, with a wife and kids, they moved in. I don't know. Maybe the prophet made a deal with somebody else, you know. All I know is that the, this new guy moved in, see. Well, one day, it hit like a thunderclap. Der Tag arrived. The end of the day was to occur, the end of the world, in fact, was to occur in just four hours. <laughs> Holy smokes, was I scared. Now, hold it. Before before the end of the world happened, they all gathered on street corners. Can I? Can, you wouldn't believe this, uh, having lived. Well, maybe you would, having lived in Philadelphia. There, uh, <laughs> I've lived in Philadelphia. It's a funny thing. There's an air there, but uh, uh, yeah, you begin to believe that the end of the world is coming along there, especially long nights out there in Fairmont Park. But nevertheless. What they did was stand on street corners with their gray robes, and everybody was going to work in the morning. Well, hundreds and hundreds of guys, you know, they're going up Lancaster Pike, everybody's driving into town in the city, and they're standing on street corners wearing long gray robes with this strange motley crew of people. Where they got these things, I don't know. They look like gray bed sheets with a hole cut in them for the head. And they're all their little kids with them, you know. They're all their grandmothers and everybody. And they had a bus, and the bus was going around picking them up to take them to Mount Olympus or whatever it is they were going to. They were going to wait for the end of the world. So they were all getting in this bus. And, of course, naturally, the word got out, and there was a wild scene. All the newsmen in the country, all the newsmen started to gather. And these people made a long trek. And I was right there up the hill until finally they were gathered at the top of this hill. There must have been a thousand of them all standing there wearing gray robes. And the end of the world was to come at 10 a.m. 
Well, it's about 9 o'clock. You know, we're getting a little nervous. All of us down there with the newsmen, there was a couple of TV guys, you know, a couple of guys with microphones. Ah, did you say the end of the world is coming, sir? The guy says, out of my way, brethren. The guy says, ah, thank you very much. Well, uh, you know, you can't help but have a funny thing, you know, <laughs> when you see it actually happening. Well, it was, it was a kind of a sad scene, though. There they are, standing up there now. They're all up there with their hands upraised. There must have been a thousand of them on top of the hill. And down on the bottom of the hill, the sightseers had gathered. All the guys in the Bermuda shorts. Uh, the chicks, you know, and the guys wearing the button-down collars with the cameras and all that. And there was a little nervousness began to be evidenced among the sightseers. Once in a while, a guy surreptitiously would raise his hands and go, ah! <laughs> and some said, what's the matter, Fred? I'm stretching. Ah! He's got his hands up there. And uh, occasionally a guy would go rummaging in the trunk of his car looking for a bed sheet. You know, it's just, you know, I just like to lay down here a little bit, you know, a bed sheet. I, I keep keeps the rain off of me, you know. Ah, they're hollering. Well, it's now 9.30 and a slow rain began to come down, which added to the, the strange, unearthly quality of the scene. It began to rain. It was one of those soft funny kind of days they get in Pennsylvania. There's a great big sky. One thing about Pennsylvania, they have a sky. Holy smokes, they really do. That's a beautiful state. The rain is coming down softer and softer, and then it picks up a little bit. And you could see them up there in that mist, this, this throng, just a great mob of people all clinging together with their hands upraised, wearing long gray robes. And in the middle of them was the prophet. The prophet walked around among, and he had a staff, some kind of a thing he was holding up in the air, like a, like a spear or something, and he was, he was exhorting his followers, and he would give no word out to the press. How he knew this, where he got this, uh, this word, it was just that he had gotten the word, that was it, and everybody believed him. And so he walked around, and eventually the prophet, apparently he had to go make another phone call to, uh, the, to God or whatever it is he was in touch with. The prophet went down the other side of the hill, the the, the the end of the world now was about a half an hour off. He disappeared in the woods, and he said he was going. He was going to come back, and uh, he raised his hand, and all the other people went, oh, oh, end of the world! Whoa! They had some kind of phrases they were yelling. Oh, what a scene! You once you see a scene like this, you begin to realize that man is capable of anything. And up there in the crowd somewhere was the guy who'd been selling me pork and beans. You know. This is just an ordinary guy. He's got a grocery store. He's up there oh, with his hands up in the air wearing the long robes. And this whole crowd of people were insurance men. I can imagine what an insurance man is doing up there in the end of the world scene. <laughs> what kind of policy covers that? Do you have a clause in your policy there that says end of the world not included in this? Uh, does metropolitan life pay off in case of a cataclysm? They do? Well, I know that a friend of mine says that his policy does not pay off in case of nuclear war. <laughs> you know that's true? In case of nuclear war, a lot of policies don't pay off. Well, I don't know whether there'd be any policies after a nuclear war. But this, the, here they are. You see, and we're all waiting. It's now ten minutes before the end of the world. And the guys are back on the phone, you know, calling up hurriedly, calling, let me break. In case it happens, I want to break into the show. Yeah. Look, now, don't give me any argument. What are, what are you going to do if the end of the world comes and we ain't covering it? Yeah? Well, look, I don't care whether or not there is a newscast and I want to break in, yeah? What? No, Murrow is not here. Murrow doesn't know everything. Okay. All right. Well, I'll let you know if the end of the world comes. Yeah, I'll have a story. Okay. Well... We waited. 
the rain came down, and then all of a sudden it was 10 a.m., and nothing happened. And the rain came down, and all the people were up there with their hands upraised, with their gray robes shining through the fog. It's now 10.15. It's now 10.30. And a few of the sightseers began to get in their cars and drive away. You know, they figured the end of the world would happen here. You had to be here to see the end of the world, some reason or other. They began to drive away. Quarter to 11, the first stragglers began to come down from the hills wearing their long gray robes. And by 1 o'clock, there was not a single person on top of that little hill outside of the quiet burg of Philadelphia. I never heard what happened to the prophet. I never heard what happened to the worldly goods that the prophet, I guess, was going to tender over to whoever this was that was in charge at the end of the world. Maybe this is a placation thing for the gods. I don't know. He never showed up again. And you know that I never once, never again, saw the grocery man. And yet, you know, I'll tell you, you laugh at this. And yet, the, 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 the strange almost instinctive thing that we all have, that there is an end of the world possible. I suspect something very sneaky about us. I suspect we would all like to see it happen. Now think about it. I suspect we would all like to see it happen. And why? Well, that's a theory that will follow immediately after this little cataclysm, the commercial. Well, I suspect, seriously, that every last one of us secretly would like to be around when the world ended, because we like to know how it all ended. We'd like to know how the short story went. We really would. You don't think so, Mike? Not you. All right. I'll exclude all listeners. I'll exclude all people who are here. They are above such things. But uh, I am speaking only for me. I suspect that I would like to be on hand to see how it all panned out. That's what I mean, how it all panned out. Now, uh, why? I don't know why. Because, you see, I've always felt that large numbers of people have a vague feeling about death, a vague, a vague uh, fear of death for one reason, all the stuff they're going to miss. Uh, they think of, gee whiz, everything's going to go on, and, you know, I won't be here, you know, they're going to have all this wild stuff and everything, wow, I'm not going to... Well, if the end of the world came, that couldn't happen. If the end of the world came, there wouldn't be anything after that, and you would know what happened. You would be on hand when the last act was played out. You would be there. Uh, I have often felt, you know, when I read about great historical characters like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln... And it's just a little thing that's occurred to me. Now, maybe it's a private vision. I don't know. A little, little thing. I've often thought, gee, wouldn't Lincoln or wouldn't Washington or wouldn't somebody like uh, Charlemagne, wouldn't he have been amazed to see this world today? Look at all he missed. Look at the wild stuff. Look at the insane scene that he has missed. Wow, we. Boy, poor old, I wouldn't trade places for a million dollars, million, million dollars with George Washington. 
because I saw all this stuff. He didn't, you know. He has no concept of uh, the atom bomb, space travel, airplanes. The whole world we know is totally unknown, completely unknown to Washington. He's been cheated. Well, then all of a sudden it hits you. Yeah, but for crying out loud, and you think of the year 3795 when these insane things are going on. People are traveling to Mars and they're traveling to Jupiter. People are, are, are being sent by thought transference, 10,000 miles in a quarter of a millisecond, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. And, and, well, where will you be? You'll be back here mired with your crummy little television set. You're back here mired in, the, in this, this work-a-day, the world that we live in. The sense of missing a great deal is always with us. Now, what does this mean about the end of the world? Well, it means that if the end of the world comes, you'll know what happened. It's like you know the end of the story. You couldn't know the beginning of the story when man started because the first act was so long ago, it's like a giant play. Uh, you know, this, this illusion to man uh, being part of, a, of an enormous play has persisted in many, many poets in many areas of the world with different languages and different philosophies. As you know, Matt, the idea of mankind being a play, Shakespeare's All the World's a Play. Well, if it's a play and you're playing in a lousy scene in the middle of the second act, wouldn't you like to know how the play is going to wind up, you know? I mean, wouldn't you like to be around when the curtain comes down and uh, you're standing around there, you know, and you're scratching? And you're, you're looking up at the sky, and you've, you've just had a, uh, you know, you've had a little a glass of soda or something, or a little bottle of ginger ale, and you've had a pastrami sandwich, and you're scratching a little bit, and you see a chick walking across the street, and the buildings are all standing there, and the cabs are running around, and the cops are yelling, and the birds are flying past, and all of a sudden, out of the darkness, boom! How? And there is that one split instant when you see a gigantic golden chariot go whistling across the sky and hanging out to the reins is Mercury or something and he's hurling lightning bolts. Boom! Boom! And an enormous voice says, It's the end of the world! Holy smokes! All right, now that's scary, okay? Is it though or is it exciting? Well, let me read to you a clipping before we go on with this. Hold on now. It's commercial time, and we'll be right back. Now, part and parcel of the great end-of-the-world myth, it, it, it runs parallel to it, is the myth that ha it has to be a myth, that there is a way to escape it. It would seem to me that this would be a contradiction in terms, you know. I mean, if the world is going to go, if the world is going to go, most people don't think of themselves as part of the world, apparently. They think they can somehow, uh, they can uh, secede. Uh, somehow they can uh, detach themselves from the world. And if the world's going to go, okay. Uh, not me, though, Dad. That has been part and parcel of the great end-of-the-world myth. And, in fact, it's what caused those guys to go up on that hill. They felt that if the end of the world came, there was a way to prevent being caught so your foot wouldn't get caught when the rocks came down, you know, whatever it is. There is a belief in this. Now, you know that there is one school of philosophical belief 
that feels this is one of the reasons why man, and man alone, has an almost insatiable desire to escape the earth itself. Have you thought about that? That we know instinctively that we have just a limited time on this globe. Uh, it's like living on quicksand. The earth has a certain lifespan. And we as animals, just like the old, the great animals of the past, they did not understand the glacier, you know. Uh, when the animals retreated south, when the great glaciers came down from the north in the ice ages, they didn't say, well, the glaciers are coming and I'm going to go down to Florida, you know. Uh, not at all. They were driven by something far deeper, some great instinct. And there is a school of thought that man, of course, is a far more instinctive creature than he knows. And uh, his instincts, because they are instincts, are totally unconscious. And so, ever since man has been around, he has dreamed of jumping off this earth and getting away. It goes back thousands and thousands of years. He has dreamed of jumping off and getting away. I don't mean just jumping up in the air and flopping around 50 feet above the ground. Getting away. Getting to that little light up in the sky. And then, if you get there, go to the next one. And the next one and the next one and the next one. It's been a tremendous urge. And there is a school of philosophical thought that this is behind much of our incessant, insane, not insane at all. It seems to be mindless. A tremendous, at all costs, damn the torpedoes drive throughout all ages to build something to get away from the earth. Now, that's an interesting problem there. Somehow we would feel better if even just two guys got away. We, we would sort of, uh, in a way, nominate when the end of the world, there will be some guy somewhere. We want to know that. And so if, if a billion years go by and the old earth sort of kind of peters out and it gets 45,000 degrees below, below uh, temperature, you know, it gets down below zero, it's a terrible, terrible cold day, and everybody is, is you know, the, the earth is now a cold planet, uh, we're dis or does it, is it going to get hot in the end? Who knows? Either way, it's going to become uninhabitable for all life, a dead planet. We secretly somehow subterranean, our, our subterranean mind wants to know that there are men someplace carrying on. We got them away. Yes, sir. We got them away. Now, uh, there, there are <laughs> a lot of ramifications of this. And uh, the, the desire to escape the end of the earth is a strong one. It's connected with self-preservation. I think we're one of, like all other animals, you know, animals themselves have a racial preservation thing going. Uh, there's a, they've, scientists have been fascinated by this, how animals themselves will cull out the weak members uh, to somehow preserve their race. They've been interested in this for a long time. They've been interested in how animals somehow sense when imminent, when there is disaster in their area, and they will move, they will go on great migrations, apparently without any, any, uh, any notice, uh, any warning, they just move. And man is involved in a thing very similar to that. And he keeps saying, well, why are we going? A lot of people say, why are we going? Now, there's another kind of guy, he knows secretly why we're going, but he feels cheated that he isn't going. Uh, a lot of 
people who will uh, will yell about space travel, they'll yell about getting to the other uh, planets, are are secretly burned up with envy because they know they're never going to make it. They aren't going to be one of those that get west. So they try to keep the others back. And yet there's a little thing that keeps saying inside of every one of us, let them go. Wow, let them go. And your your outward voice may say, Oh, you guys are boondoggling. You're wasting all the taxes, all the dough. What are you guys? Come on, you guys. If you're not, yeah, look at If I ain't going to go, you ain't going to go. Well, it's a, it's a deep, deep urge to send them and at the same time not go. Uh, we'll be right back after the commercial, gang. <laughs> Now, here is a contemporary clipping. This is from Indiana, Huntingburg, Indiana. The congregation of the Huntingburg Pentecostal Church is preparing to take refuge in an abandoned coal mine from, quote, the great destruction. It expects to strike the world in about two months. The warning came from Juanita Coomer, mother of two children, last year. About 40 other members of the congregation, including the pastor, said confirmation came to them. Interesting phrase. The church then withdrew its affiliation with other congregations, which scoffed at them. The members began preparing shelter in an abandoned coal mine bought by Mrs. Coomer's husband, Lonnie. The mine, which is about six miles east of this southwestern Indiana town, has been provided with bunks, sanitary facilities, battery-powered lights, and a ventilation system. It's been stocked with water and food for at least two weeks. I guess they don't figure the destruction is going to be very big. <laughs> two weeks. A nylon carpet covers a layer of straw on the hard stone floor. Somehow there's a lot of sadness to this. I don't know why it sounds so sad. A low tunnel leading 150 feet into the main caverns where coal was mined years ago will be sealed with a big concrete block when the time comes. It's hard to explain how the word came from Juanita, her mother said. It's like the Lord speaking mouth to mouth through Moses in the Bible. She doesn't remember what came from her mouth afterward, but we know the, the world's going to end. Last June, she said, the voice from her said the great destruction would come around the middle of March next year. But his years are not like our years, you see. What happened? That was a year ago, and we figured out that his years aren't like our years. So we figured what he meant was this year. So we're going to hang around. We're, we're waiting for word now on when to go into the shelter. We're waiting. It'll come. We're just waiting here. The congregation has sent warnings to friends, relatives, and acquaintances in 48 states. They have room for 60 more people in the mine. And the warning goes out to say, Well, there isn't much time to get ready. There will be a, uh, be a tremendous manifestation about the middle of March next year. It will shake the earth. Of course, we're on. It's just going to shake the earth all the way down to the foundation. It's going to destroy all who are wicked on the earth. Of course, that's going to leave us. wicked ones go, and, and since the Lord has said he's going to destroy all the wicked people, there's just going to be uh, certain people left. And, uh, well, we figure who 
they're going to be. We know who they are, so we're already getting down the shelter. We know he's going to spare us. We ain't wicked. Are we, Ma? That's right, Ma. We ain't. Well, now, you laugh at this, but the, the point that I'm making here is this is going on in 20th century America. Uh... <laughs> So this urge is a deep-seated one. This is exactly the same kind of thing that 4,000 years ago made people withdraw into caves and stay there until the time of the great retribution passed. It's the same kind of feeling that must have gone through people's minds a 1,000 years ago when the locusts came out of the south and the word was out, the world was about to end. Have you noticed that, that most of these world is about to end thing, seems somehow always to revolve around good and evil. It never it never seems to be a question of geology. It never seems to be a question that the earth might, just because it is made of a ball of iron, might split in half, you know. Speaking of good and evil, friends, we have good news here for you. And so here we sit all of us, in the mid-20th century. Twenty centuries since the time of Christ. They figure about two billion years, more or less, since the time the earth itself was formed. Isn't that about what they say, Maddie? About two billion years? Or is it four now? Five? It just keeps going further and further into the past. About five billion years now, they figure this earth has been here, and it took a long time for us to come sneaking out of the bushes. How many more billion years will it be? Well, there have been theories about that. Some say one and a half. You know, some say that the Earth is getting near the end of its skein. Uh, speaking in the broad sense, it's getting near the end. And we sit, waiting. It's getting a little cold. Have you noticed the winters are not the same as they used to be, friends? Yeah, they're warmer. Have you noticed that? They don't have snow like they used to. Let me tell you. There's something in that. They don't have the same... You notice that it used to rain a lot more than it used to? Or it doesn't rain as much. Or it rained more. I don't compare it. It's different anyway. That's all I know. Is have you noticed that the, the air used to be brighter or cleaner or something? Oh, yeah. But I do know one thing, boy. They don't have snow like they used to. I think there's something to this. I figure about next Tuesday. About 3 o'clock, I figure. 